It was impressive to see the large number of people that were there at the march. And my two concerns were, well, will we have many people here? You know, and my other concern was, will there be violence? She asked him to, you know, throw that part in, throw in that dream speech, Martin. To welcome Martin Luther King to the speaker's podium. I think it speaks to the hopes and aspirations of humanity. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He said back then, for the black person, we have twice the bad and half the good. That's still true today. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gave one of the most iconic speeches in history. I Have a Dream was a turning point of the civil rights movement, paving the way for a transformation of American law and life. 60 years after that speech, we've come to Dr. King's hometown of Atlanta. He was born in this house to discover the man behind the myth. Atlanta, the cradle of the modern civil rights movement and the heart of the segregationist South. In the 1930s, the now historic Sweet Auburn District was filled with thriving black-owned businesses, one of the richest black areas in America. The family home just down the street from Ebenezer Baptist Church, where young Martin would go on to be pastor like his father and grandfather. At just 15 years old, he began studying at Morehouse, one of 107 historically black colleges and universities in America. The man who would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize was not the best student, spending more time in glee club or on the basketball court than homework. But he did win several awards in debate club. Uh, he always called me Brother Black. Uh, the students were always addressed as Mr. or Miss in class, and everybody else was addressed that way, but he called me Brother Black. And, and I appreciated that. I, we had some kind of connection there. Dr. King has been a teacher to millions around the world, but he only officially taught once. Charles Black was one of just eight students who took King's class here at Morehouse in 1962. When uh, Dr. King was not um, at a podium or microphone, uh, he spoke in a very soft, uh, actual, a bit of a monotone. Sometimes I had difficulty staying awake because <laughs> the quiet monotone of his voice. So Dr. But, Dr. King's class was boring? No, the subject matter was not boring and he was not boring, uh, but I guess I was uh, pretty tired most of the time from trying to do so many things. Uh, and it would have helped me if he had uh, spoken more like the Dr. King everybody knew. Do you know why Dr. King was teaching a class here at Morehouse? Did he need a job? Um, I think it was largely because he had uh, very limited income and any time that he received honoraria uh, for speaking engagement, all that, he turned it over to his organization, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, rather than keeping it as personal income. But the other was that uh, I think it was felt too that we needed that kind of a grounding. As I think it, uh, everybody in there was in, in, to some degree involved in the, in the student movement activities. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Alabama, sparking a year-long bus boycott led by a local pastor named Martin Luther King. 
Five years later, Charles Black was part of the Atlanta student movement that helped destroy Jim Crow laws in Georgia, getting beaten and jailed in the process. Dr. King always preached nonviolence. That's part of his legacy today. But when you were living it, when you're getting beat upon or arrested or jailed, is it difficult to follow that legacy? Was it difficult to follow that legacy of nonviolence? Did everyone follow it? Uh, no. Uh, many of the students um, did not participate in our protest demonstrations because they, they said, you know, I don't know what I might do. Well, some of them were just afraid, of course. You know, I would always remind people, you know, we don't have any planes and guns and tanks uh, in airplanes, you know, to uh, fight the folk who have them. So it makes no sense to turn to violence. Uh, that's very impractical. Uh, so as a strategy, it made sense and it became effective. The other reason was you got the sympathy of the broader community. Uh, and, you know, they appreciated what we were doing and the, and the sacrifices and, and the risks that we were taking. Uh, so that gave us greater range of allies across all, all spectrums. Right, like what happened at Selma. Yes, yes, exactly. This year we're marking the 60th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech. Yes. You went to that march on yes, Washington. What was it like to hear him pronounce those words, I have a dream? A lot of what he said I'd heard before, including the I have a dream part. And that was not a part of his prepared speech, as, as you may know. Um, uh, Mahalia Jackson, who was on the podium up there, uh, yelled out to him, Martin, tell him about the dream. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state... My husband was uh, in the hotel room helping to draft the speech. But once he got on the stage, she asked him to, you know, throw that part in, throw in that dream speech, Martin. I laid a joke with them. Well, all that work and you all were doing, you and Ed together, <laughs> was a waste of time because you didn't use so much of it. Like the great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, Ed and Zernona Clayton were part of the inner circle of both Dr. King and his wife and fellow activist, Coretta Scott King. They persuaded the Claytons to leave their thriving careers in Los Angeles and move to Atlanta to take up the cause. So here, this is you, Ted Kennedy, and Dr. King. Yes. At 93, Zernona Clayton is today a civil rights icon herself. She was also the first black person to host a TV show in the South, famously convincing a grand dragon from the Ku Klux Klan to resign. But she says her time with the Kings was the best part of her life. Oh boy, it was like joy. She and I uh, had a relationship that was special. He and I had one that was special and then put the family together and made it more special. Now I have to qualify that it was difficult because who really wants to fight every day? You don't want to, uh, but you feel like that's the only way we can survive is to fight the dragons of prejudice. You're one of the few people who actually got to know Dr. King as a friend. What was he like as a man? Was he funny? Was he stubborn? He always looks serious when he's talking, but in private, he was the funniest man alive. If he told a story about a French person, he could speak it. And so he would speak. <laughs> his kind of French. And when he's telling a story, I mean, you just fall out laughing. 
he thought a laugh was so rejuvenating. Can you tell me about the last time you saw Dr. King alive uh, when you drove him to the airport before he was killed in Memphis? This morning was an unusual morning because one of the boys picked up his briefcase and said, Daddy, don't go. And then he said, oh, I'll be right back. And then he got the door open because the other boy had blocked the door and put his arms from the door. And he said, Daddy, please don't leave us. That was a plea. Now we think, now they were too young to have premonitions, but um, unusual behavior for them, to say the least. And he said, you know, I've got a lot of thinking to do when I come back, because now my family's falling apart. And that was the last I saw him. Obviously, was very confused uh, by what had happened because my mother was trying to help me understand he wouldn't be coming back. I wouldn't see him again or hear him. Um, and so the confusion got greater because they played his voice at the funeral. Bernice A. King was just five years old when her father was killed. The picture of her in her mother's lap at the funeral moved millions around the world. That little girl is now the head of the King Center in Atlanta. The space, created by her mother to honor her father's legacy, is today paying tribute to them both, but also setting the record straight. I want people to know the reality, the truth, that during the time that he was speaking, it was, it was very um, unsafe to say some of the things, you know, he said to uh, work against some of the systems and structures that were in place, particularly um, in the South, you know, where it was by law, you know, black and white could not mix and blend together. There was a poll done, you know. Um, I think it was somewhere around 1966, 67, uh, where, you know, it stated, you know, that he was very, he was very hated here in America. Um, and, uh, at that time, he had spoken out against the war in Vietnam, too. Um, and they felt like, you know, he was now taking a stance in opposition to his government, his pre the president that he worked with for so many years on civil rights issues. How dare, you know, you speak out against the government this way? Is it hard at all, being the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr.? Is it a burden in any way? Um, it has been at certain points in my life when I was younger, of course, because I didn't want uh, to feel like I had to live under this shadow or according to any particular um, standard that people may have had. But as time has passed, it has become a wonderful responsibility for me um, to be a part of this family. Just as I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Does racism still affect you, Bernice A. King, oh, today? Oh, by, by, by many means, especially systemically. I mean, I don't have the people saying nigger to me or anything like that. 
but I live in a, a black neighborhood in a certain zip code. It's hard for me to get certain services. We don't service that side of town. So they're buzzwords, you know, we don't service that zip code. <laughs> Usually that means we don't come to the black community. So yes, I face it over and over again. It's very frustrating. So I don't get the kind of elevated services that folks on the north side of Atlanta get. That's a problem. What do you think today your father, if he was alive, would make of the state of race relations in the United States? I think he would be deeply troubled and disturbed. Not surprised, though. That we still, as black Americans, uh, have some fighting to do. Uh, that we took a number of steps forward and uh, other steps backwards. We still have not understand the dignity, worth, and value of the black person. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty!